Mac Power Users, Episode 380, MPU Plus, recorded on May 30th, 2017. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with my pal David Sparks. How are you, David? Great, Katie. How are you today? I'm well. So we are getting things kicked off a little out of order this episode. We do have a special guest joining us uh, to talk all about regular expressions. Um, We have threatened it. And we're going to do it. You have found us, uh, I guess, who's going to talk all about this. But they're actually going to be joining us a little later at the end of the episode. Is that the plan? Yeah, well, you know, regular expressions are a thing programmers use, but it's also something for normal people. And if you use copy and paste a lot, you may want to listen to the segment. But just with scheduling, we're going to have Ed in later in the show. All right. So we'll look forward to that. But we've got a lot of good stuff to cover, a lot of feedback that has been coming in. Um, for the. It's been a couple of uh, weeks since we've done an MPU Plus show. Actually, it's been a couple of months, Katie. Okay, it's been a couple of months. We've, we've been a little <laughs> lax on that. So we, we have plenty of stuff to dig into. So I figured we'd get started um, and start by saying that the MPU Facebook group is off to a stellar, st- not even start, I guess it's been out for a couple of months now. Um, but, but there has just been a slew of excellent listener questions and answers. Um, it has really become its own little help community there. Yeah, it's roaring. Get in there. I, I'm not in there as much as I'd like. I'm trying to get in there every two or three days. And uh, but boy, some of the folks are in there every day and there's a lot of good information getting passed around. Yeah, I do want to say a special thanks to Rose, who has been helping us out in there with some um, moderation and helping us to get people approved. Because I, I try to jump in there at least every day at the beginning of the day. Um, there are probably easily a couple dozen pending still requests that come in every day for people looking for memberships um, or lo- looking to get access to the closed group. Uh, we do have a few spammers that are, get promptly booted out, but um, but thank you. So we do have a couple of questions that have come in and a couple of uh, good topics for discussion. A lot of them came from the Facebook group, so I wanted to highlight a few things that you might have missed. Yeah. And just on that real quick, you know, the Internet can be a terrible place, but I I really like to think that this Mac Power Users Facebook group is a nice community. And um, if you're hesitant to get involved, this is one you may want to join because just really nice people. Anyway, let's let's get on with some Facebook questions. So uh, Matthew had a question about scanning photos. He says, I'm trying to digitize a massive amount of photos from my childhood and I'm ready to buy a scanner but I'm not entirely sure about the best option. I've been checking out the Epson V550 and V1600, I'm sorry, V550 and V600 as they do multi-picture scans, but does anybody have any recommendations for this project? David, have you done a lot of photo scanning? Because I have lots of thoughts on this. Well, it's been a while. Uh, Photo scanners in general, to take good pictures of photos as opposed to documents, we talk a lot about document scanners, we don't talk too much about photo scanners, but they're generally a much higher resolution, and the scan is generally much slower, because they're trying to capture all that information. Uh, When my mom passed away, and we had all these pictures, and, you know, there's four siblings in my family, we want to make sure we got it to everybody, um, I I didn't want to go through the boxes and boxes of pictures, and I looked at the scanners, and the stuff that would take an adequate scan was quite expensive and time-consuming to go through. So ultimately, what I did was I found an online vendor that had very high-quality scanners, and they would do it for a fee, and I sent it out and had it scanned, and I was really glad I did it. This was several years ago. Um, 
I don't have a vendor I can recommend, but that is something I think definitely worth looking into. It, when you say I've got a massive amount of photos like Matthew does, um, you may uh, may want to subcontract this out to somebody that has a really good scanner and the time to do it. So I actually feel very similarly to you. So I'm going to kind of hijack Matthew's thread and say, I'm not going to recommend a scanner. I'm also like David going to recommend that you um, you, you send this out to a professional service. I had the same experience as you when, when my grandparents were getting sick and ultimately passed. We had the same experience and we had a combination of slides, you know, thousands and thousands of slides that they had done from their family travels um, and photos and photo books. And I sent some of them off to a scanning service because, you know, I'd found a group on or something like that. And they were fine. I think the one we used was Scan Digital. Uh, and then we also found a local shop that would scan them. And I'll give you a couple of tips. The The local shop was a little more expensive, but it made me feel better. It made me feel better on a couple levels. One, because I was giving business to a local shop that, you know, I knew and I knew these people and I'd grown up with some of the, you know, owner's kids. Um, it also made me feel better because they were scanning everything on site. And if something was wrong or if something went missing, then I knew that my photos were at least, you know, within a couple of mile radius that they, you know, they hadn't been shipped off somewhere into some factory and, and possibly packaged and shipped off and who knows where. Yeah. Well, and you removed the post from the whole situation. You were able to drive the pictures there and get them back. I think one of the big fears I had was not that the company that I hired would, would lose or destroy the photos, but somehow somewhere between my house and their business, the photos would get lost. Right. And, and and thankfully, in your case and in my case, that did not happen, but it can. And the odds of that happening are, are not high, but, you know, anytime you add that, you add uncertainty in the equation. Um, the tip that I would give you, the best price that you're going to get is is with you if you do volume. So don't do these in batches. Collect everything and do as much as you can in, in one go. Because I found that they were about a buck a piece per scan. But then if you got over a couple of hundred, then the price dropped dramatically. And we ultimately got them down to about 50 cents a scan for, for pretty high quality scans. So um, the other thing that I would look at is if you're looking at a scanning service that has multiple qualities of scan, get the absolute highest quality scan you recommend because you're only going to scan these once. You don't want to have to go back and rescan them. You know, hard drive space is cheap. Get the highest quality scan you can. We tried to scan these ourselves. I, I had an uncle who was recently retired and, you know, techie enough that he decided that he was going to get a big, expensive slide scanner. And his rationale made sense. His rationale was, I'm going to buy the slide scanner. The slide scanner will be about a thousand bucks. I'm going to scan the slides. And then by the time we're done, I'll be a couple of months later and I'll probably be able to sell the slide scanner for 750 bucks, you know, take a 25 to 30% loss on it. And, you know, then my cost of scanning, you know, will, will only be 250 bucks. Well, the reality was he scanned one tray of slides because the scanning them with the slide scanner was such a pain to do. His scans were the worst. We ended up having to have them rescanned. And, you know, we ended up scan reselling that slide scanner for a fraction of what he paid for it. So in the end, we really wish we had just scanned them all right out of the gate and not even messed with it. And that kind of getting back to Matthew's question, uh, these Epson scanners, I looked them up. They look nice, like nice scanners, but I expected a commercial facility that does this all day has something even better than these. And 
Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, you want really great quality pictures because these aren't just for you. They're for your grandkids and great grandkids. This this is the only way they're ever going to see those pictures. Um, so you do want them as high as possible because, you know, the iPhone 82 is going to have a very high density screen. <laughs> you think there'll be an iPhone 82? Maybe there will be. I, I, I pray that by that point we'll get out of numbering them. Or, or by then it'll just be your retina implant or whatever. Yeah. And then, you know, these scanners like the Epson V600, it's a flatbed scanner. So the way that I look at it, you're every single scan. And, and he says he has a lot of scans. You're, you're going to have to take the photo, clean off the scanner, lift up the lid, put the photo down, you know, scan it, do a preview scan, then do a high resolution scan. Uh, I mean, and all of this other stuff, I, I think you're just going to be miserable. I think you'll do, you know, a couple of dozen and realize that this is a big pain. I once had somebody do some flatbed scanning for me of some photos and she wasn't paying attention. So when she would shut the lid, it would create a little like of a Venturi effect, a little wind in, underneath there. And the images would get blown out of kilter. And then when I got the scans, they were all crooked. It's like, ah, you know, so I had to do them over again. Anyway, I think we've answered the question. Neither Katie nor I would buy a photo scanner. We did have a lot of people recommend or question in the Facebook group. What about using the scan snaps to scan photos? Um, I think you can do it, but I don't know that I'd recommend you do it. I, I have used it for one-off photos or something here or there, but I, I think you need to keep in mind that the scan snap is a document scanner. And and you can get decent scans of photos out of the scan snap, but if you're really scanning photos for archival purposes, I, I'm not sure that I would do that long term. Uh, and here's another tip. Uh, let's say you're at a relative's house and they've got an old snapshot that you want to capture into your system. Okay, so it's not a massive amount of photos, but it's one or two that you'd really like to have in your library. Um, there's a great app that Google makes called PhotoScan. Um, one word, no space, PhotoScan, and it's on the App Store. Uh, it is an app made for the specific purpose of taking pictures of snapshots with your phone. And they do some, you know, googly magic that removes the glare. Uh, I've used it on several, like when we go to family events and I see a picture, I'm like, oh, I want that in my library. So I'll just take a picture of it with PhotoScan. So that's a that's a way to do the one-off stuff. But, but if you've got a massive number like uh, the listener does here, you want to send it out. All right. I think we've about covered that one. I think so. Uh, Steven wrote in about moving mom to an iPad. He says, hey, I'm moving my elderly mother and getting rid of her ancient Windows XP machine. Amen for Steven. He just saved himself a huge headache. <laughs> we So we bought her an iPad mini, which is now her primary machine, so we can, set, uh, can dump the PC. The problem is her bookmarks favorites are on the PC, and so are her photos. There's no chance of upgrading the old machine so it can run the iCloud app for Windows. What's the best strategy for bookmarks and photos? So we had a lot of good suggestions um, off of Facebook. Yeah, the, the Facebook is paying dividends here. You guys did the research for us. Thank you. Uh, Rose actually suggested that if you log into iCloud.com, there is a web interface for photos. So depending on how many photos you're dealing with here, you can actually drag and drop and upload those photos to the web interface and get your photos into iCloud that way. Now, Stephen wrote back that there was a slight issue with this, that mom's XP machine was so old and the browser was so out of date that it couldn't run this. Yeah, but but he could um, copy the photos off mom's machine and take it back. Take it to another computer that could could do this. Sure. 
But we mentioned that because that's another option for other people. The, um, the other option that was presented by Melanie, which was another good option, was to export the photos to Google Photo and install the Google Photos app on her iPad. And then later you can copy them into the Photos app on the iPad if you want, and then even keep Google Photos as a backup if she wanted. Um, what Stephen ultimately ended up doing for the photos is apparently there is a version of iTunes on Windows because, you know, we have to give a glass of water to those people every now and again. Remember, wasn't that what Steve Jobs said? A glass of water and to the people in the hell. Although if you look at the implementation, implement, somebody asked Steve, Steve Jobs why he put iTunes on PC. He says even you have to give every people in the hell a glass of water once in a while. But I'm not so sure it was a very good glass of water if you look at it. But one of the things it will do is apparently it will copy photos from Windows XP onto an iPad. So there's that option. Uh, another option that we had was, you know, using a Mac, um, you could create a separate user account for mom. Like if you've got a Mac at home and just create a user account for mom, you presumably you have an iCloud account for her on her iPad. So just give a separate login for mom on your Mac temporarily and then um, you could, it's a modern operating system, modern Mac. Uh, you could grab all the photos, uh, export them off your PC. Then you could import them into the Photos app inside mom's user account on your Mac. Uh, it also presumes you have enough space for it. And, uh, and then let it do its magic to sync up to iCloud. And then you would get them down to her iPad that way. You could do the same thing with bookmarks. Yeah, I would say this is not even a bad idea just if, especially if you have a laptop, depending on where mom lives, to go ahead and do this anyway, to create mom a user account on your Mac, just for backup and, and support services. Because, you know, iOS is still not a 100% completely contained ecosystem. It's still a good idea to back it up from time to time to a Mac. It's still a good idea to sync it from time to time to a Mac and those types of things. It it turns out, actually getting the bookmarks, and I'm assuming that mom had a lot of bookmarks, so just going through and manually bookmarking them was, was not a good option, was, was the harder piece. Because Safari on Windows is no longer a thing. So you can't just log into Safari and, and sync them. And my immediate thought was, well, what about X marks? Doesn't that still sync stuff? Well, apparently that's no longer a thing either. Yeah, it's getting, it's hard for those third parties to exist with the big companies driving this stuff now. So um, Kathy suggested that you export her bookmarks from the Windows browser, probably using a, a different browser like Chrome or Firefox, to an HTML file, and then copy that file either with email or flash drive um, on that new user account that you've created on your Mac, and then import those bookmarks into her user account in Safari, and then sync them either with iCloud so that her bookmarks come over. So kind of a roundabout way, but... No, it makes sense. But it, it, the, the one takeaway for me in all this is it's a lot harder than it should be. And presumably, you have to be careful with those photos, the way you export them even. I don't know what, what format her photos are in, but you'd like to try and preserve the metadata to the extent there is any. So when you get the transition over, you at least have the dates, if not location. Well, and you want to make sure that you're exporting them at full quality, that you're you're not getting lower quality photos. Well, Stephen, let us know how it all went and how mom likes her iPad. I think that's a that's a good use of an iPad. And uh, I, I know he got her an iPad mini, which if rumor is correct, there may not be many more of those. We'll see. I still really like the iPad mini, although I, I wonder for an, an older person if a bigger iPad might not have been better just from a 
um, a visual perspective, but you never know. The smaller ones are also kind of easier to handle. So we'll see. I want to thank our friends at Smile for their longtime support of Mac Power users and talk about the brand new PDF Pen 9, the ultimate tool for editing PDFs and going paperless. So PDF Pen 9 was recently released and it packs over 100 enhancements to improve your PDF editing and workflow. Just to name a few, PDF Pen 9 has an enhanced sidebar and annotations view. It has more export options than ever. So you can now even export as like a flattened PDF, something that I've been trying to do for a long time. PDF Pen 9 now makes that available. It has a hand tool so that you can pan and zoom around your PDF files. It has linking ability to other local PDF files. You can find and highlight to bring attention to all instances of a term phrase in your PDF. It has line numbering, which for me as an attorney is great for legal documents. And it even has support for forms that include calculations. The pro version brings enhancements to the table of contents editing and adds OCR support for Chinese, Japanese, and Korean. I love the fact that Smile is constantly innovating to bring new and updated features to their product. In fact, I was just talking with a group of attorneys about PDF editing, and they spent thousands of dollars on other PDF products, and I use PDF Pen Pro for Mac, as well as their companion, PDF Pen for iOS, and I can do everything I need with PDFs for a fraction of the cost of what you spend on some of those other professional PDF applications. I have a completely paperless practice. I can sign documents, fill out forms, add text, add graphics, redact sensitive information, convert PDFs to Microsoft Word. Whatever I need to do, PDF Pen can do it. PDF Pen starts at just $74.95. If you want to upgrade to the Pro version, that starts at just $124.95. But if you own a previous version of PDF Pen, upgrade pricing is available. And as always, you can try it before you buy it. So head over to smilesoftware.com slash MPU, check out the entire PDF pen family. And thanks to Smile for your continued support of the show. All right. Well, you know, we did that whole iOS hidden features show. And of course, there were a few that we missed. Uh, We heard from Becca about 3D touching apps and spotlight searches. I did not know that you could do that. But apparently, when you search for an app in Spotlight or on a Siri suggested app, that you can also activate 3D touch on those apps. Um, Becca said that once she figured this out, she started using it all the time, and it allowed her to move several things off of her home screen. How clever. There's so much there. (laughs) You know, you spend a lot of time with this stuff, and you think you know it all, but you don't. Just start 3D touching all over the place. You never know what you're going to find. And the day after the show publishes, hopefully there'll be even more 3D touch features as Apple announces iOS 11. Do, do you think we'll ever get 3D touch on the iPad or do you think it's just uh, too, too different of a surface area? I was told that the problem is um, triangulation, that the, the way it does 3D touch is kind of remarkable. It, the With the size of glass in the iPhone, it's able to measure um, micro I'm, I'm going to use the wrong terms. Every time you get technical, you, you ruin it. But if you press against the glass, the phone is able of sensing that. And it's able to sense where you're pressing physically against the glass. And the size of the iPhone makes it a lot easier than a bigger screen. On a bigger screen, it's much harder to know exactly where the pressure is being applied to the glass. And um, so until they figure that out, I think that is the hangup. But it's Apple. They may have figured it out. A year ago, and they're just waiting to the you know ramp it up. Who knows? Wouldn't you be upset if it comes to the nine point seven and the ten point five inch iPad, but not the twelve inch? Yeah, well, it, but if, if that's the reason why, it wouldn't surprise me. I, I think eventually it'll get there because it is so useful. My my one gripe about three D touch is 
um, getting the, if you want to move apps on the screen, there's a, there's like magic to getting it pushing enough to get the, you know, apps to jiggle so you can move them, but not triggering 3d touch. Yeah. Sometimes it's just, it's really hard to figure out when do I rest and hold? When do I 3d touch? When do I 3d touch a little bit harder? It's, um, yeah, it, it's kind of funny sometimes when you're talking to somebody about how do I activate this? Well, push on your screen. What? Push harder, push harder, push harder. Oh, there you go. So getting, so getting to jiggle, my my trick is just rest your finger on the screen over the app. Don't don't press at all. And that usually works for me. The other problem I have with 3D touch is the, the difference between the 3D touch gesture, which is not on all devices, and the long press, which is on all devices. And um, I think once once they can get 3D touch across the line, that would give it the ability to kind of pull away from the long touch. Anyway, uh we also heard about Control Center from Adam. In Control Center, you can quickly access the different camera types, video, etc., um, by doing 3D touch on the camera icon. I didn't include that in the last show because I thought we covered that in the first um, Hidden Tips show, but uh, you know, I, I may have forgot. Um, he also says you can 3D touch the flashlight to bring up the different brightness levels, or the clock to bring up different timer presets. Um, basically that whole line in control center, 3d touching gives you options, which is nice. You know, we, uh, get talking about our, our audio ship and our audio media management workflows. I am so embarrassed because we missed one of our favorite podcast apps and it's made by one of our good friends and our, all of our friends over at shifty jelly. I'm sorry. Yeah, Shifty Jelly, that's right. Um, Russell and crew, and we did not talk about Pocket Casts. Well, we were running out of time with that, with that last one, so we just missed it. I think it must have been on the outline, and we just skipped right over it. But we had lots of people write in and say, how can you forget about Pocket Casts as a podcast app? Um, it is, I think, the only podcast app that is available on pretty much all the platforms. It's available on iPhone and iPad. It's available on Android. It's available on Windows Phone now, and they've even got a web player. So it's a fully featured podcast app. It will sync and back up your subscriptions across all of your various devices. Um, it's got episode filters, variable speed. Everything stays in sync no matter where you are. This is particularly a good solution for people who are cross-platform, either Mac and Windows or iPhone and Windows or Android, because uh, it pretty much works everywhere. I mean, there's just some really shockingly good podcast apps out there. So sorry, Russell. So go check out Pocket Casts. All right. On our big questions show, we talked about the Disney Circle. We had some uh, users write in to say that they felt like there was some security issues with the uh, Disney Circle device. We haven't studied it or researched it, so we really don't know, except I would just say if you're considering that, look into it carefully. Yeah, I guess there's some concerns with the way that Disney is potentially implementing um, and and how they're going about it. Um, I would just like to see some white papers on this. And if anybody has links to how Disney is implementing their filtering, um, you know, I'd be happy to look at those further. But I think with any of these solutions, the big key to any of these parental control softwares is um, be aware of how they work, how they're storing data, how they're filtering data, and where all that information is going. Yeah, I mean, by definition, anything that is acting as, in, this, in essence, a net nanny uh, does need to see your traffic. Uh, so, you know, what they do with it is another question, but you are giving them permission to a certain extent just by signing into the service. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, they're they're going to be the gatekeepers in between your traffic and and what's being seen. So th- there's a you know inherent level of access that they have to have and stuff that they have to see. Now the question is, how is it stored? Where is it stored? What do they do with it? When is it purged? Um, you know, th- those are all important privacy questions that I think need to be looked at with any of these types of services. Um, we also heard from Dustin with questions about security on the Amazon Echo. He said, curious about whether you had any privacy or security concerns regarding the Echo. So far, I've bought HomeKit devices, but there isn't many options with HomeKit as there are with Echo. You know, there's there's always the security. People, Lots of people are concerned um, about having a device that is designed to listen to you in your home, because Amazon says that it only listens when it hears the wake word. But, you know, I was sitting watching TV last night, and on at least two occasions, because the the way that my house is set up now, um, the Echo happens to be kind of directly in my line of sight when I'm, or kind of off to the side of my line of sight when I'm watching TV, and it wasn't before. But on at least two occasions, I saw the little blue light of my Echo light up, stay lit for a second or two, and then fade back down again. And my guess is it heard something that it thought sounded like the wake word. And, you know, maybe it wasn't confident about it. So then it just, you know, fizzled back down again. But but you always question, how often does that happen? How often does Amazon, the Echo, start listening and then disregard? Um, you know, how long is that data stored? Where is that data stored? We know that there have been at least at least one case uh, where the FBI has tried to issue a subpoena for information that may be available on Echo. Now, whether they're only going to be able to get access to, you know, actual inquiries that have been made of the Echo or whether there's other ambient noise or other information or other stuff that the Echo just kind of thinks is, um, you know, not important and is disregarded, uh, who knows? But, you know, those are all things to be aware of. Um, You know, Amazon says they don't have that information, that they don't store it and if, you know, that they don't keep it for very long. But, you know, kind of depends on what your level of comfort is. Um, the HomeKit security, I, I think, definitely adds an additional layer of security because Apple requires an encryption chip. But keep in mind, so many of these things support multiple different services. So even if HomeKit is not the venue for an, or the avenue for an attack, you know, anything that supports HomeKit and Amazon's protocol and whatever these other protocols are, you know, just because it has the HomeKit chip in it doesn't mean that it's invulnerable. Yeah, I mean, that honestly explains one of the reasons why there isn't as much HomeKit stuff out there, because Apple has raised the bar a little bit in terms of security for the devices, and it's more trouble to comply with it. But, uh, you know, looking online, there is a lot of good HomeKit stuff out there now. I think you can pretty much get away with it. We just had to replace our um, our ceiling fan, and, and there's HomeKit ceiling fans available if you want. You could control with your, your device. I didn't get one because I... Uh, I was too cheap, to be honest with you. But the, uh, I don't feel the burning desire to, to control it with my phone. But, but just the idea that it's out there reminded me that you know HomeKit is getting deeper at this point. Well, and even things that did not have HomeKit support before are starting to get HomeKit support. Like the Belkin Wemo for years has been the holdout. They've said HomeKit support is coming. And they just now officially announced a press release that says that they're, they're getting a HomeKit hub kind of similar to the way that the Philips Hue bulbs have this hub that's going to be a little box that plugs into your network that is now going to make uh, the Wemo switches HomeKit compatible. It's it's just embedding encryption. I am, you know, it's interesting that Apple has not made it easy for people to get in on HomeKit the way some of these other competing 
standards have. And part of that is just Apple being Apple, but I think part of it is for good cause, you know, trying to put security into the system. It'll be really interesting to see how this all shakes out over the next couple of years. I'll be very curious if Apple does introduce a Siri-type speaker, either at WWDC or at some point in the future, whether they um, specifically address the privacy issue and how much time and focus and attention they spend on it, whether there's a white paper on their website, whether they actually spend keynote time on it, um, and, and what they have to say. I would bet you a nickel that if they have a Siri and a CAN product, that it will have um, it will have significant considerations given to privacy. That's that's a thing. It's, and I don't think they view it just as a marketing thing. I think Apple really believes that stuff, and, and that will cause some compromises too. So <laughs> you get the good with the bad. That was my next question is because, you know, now all we have is this on-device photo recognition and we have to redo it every time, you know, we, we have a new iPhone or a new Mac or a new iPad and, you know, that, that definitely creates some issues. It's not as good as some of the other services. So, you know, is that why Siri has been crippled? Is that why she's not that good? Is that why she can't talk to other devices? Maybe. Yeah, I, you know, the, the whole narrative about Siri being crippled, I think, is an overstatement. Um, the last couple of months I've been spending a lot of time with Google voice services and testing some stuff for a potential article and Siri is not really, I don't think it's that much worse. I think they're in the same ballpark with each other. Something Siri dictation does better. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like Siri kind of has the same, uh, you know, uh, tar and feathering that we got with, what was it before iCloud? It was a uh, dot Mac. Or dot me. Remember dot me. Everybody thought it was terrible. Mobile me. Mobile me. That's it. Goodness. How do I, I guess I'm getting old, Katie. Forgetting these names. Before that, it was iTools. Yeah, but but the um but the problem, you know, it gets this kind of uh, label put on that it's terrible, and I, I just don't see it that way. I, I know it's not great, but none of these digital services are a replacement for a human at this point, and. The only way we're going to get there is to to keep pushing forward. I I don't know. I, I I'm not trying to. I understand what, where you're coming from, but I just feel like the everyone just to sit around and accept that Siri's terrible. I'm not sure I agree with that. Please email David. Yeah, I know. I'll, I'm sure I'll get them and be called a fanboy and everything else. The funny thing about this show is, I if I say something like that, people will say I'm an Apple apologist, and somebody else will write me and say that I'm too hard on Apple. So. Just let me have it. It's okay. I can take it. Well, yeah, I don't. I don't think you're an Apple apologist or fanboy. I just, I, I, I think we. My concern is, I think that Siri has stagnated for several years without improvement, and I, I think it would be one thing. I think it would be a very different thing if we kept seeing, um, you know, significant progressive improvement with Siri. But I, I think we've just hit a point where, for the last several years, it hasn't gotten a whole lot better. Well, I, I'd agree with you there that it, all this stuff needs way more attention and it's super hard. But, but uh, the way Apple is trying to do it is is interesting. I mean, they like if you look at the Amazon Echo, uh, it's very specific the way you trigger actions. You have to have a very specific syntax. You have to say words in a very specific way where Siri by design is supposed to be more loosey-goosey, which is much harder to do. And and they they still haven't climbed that hill. But you know, maybe this will be the year. See, I disagree with you. I find the exact opposite. But we've talked about Siri on the last three shows, and we've complained about Siri on the last three shows. So we probably probably should 
stop beating that drum, at least until after WWDC and we see what happens. Yeah, I agree. All right. Uh, so we, we talked also about Lima and the, the death of the transporter and this product called Lima. Uh, when we mentioned it, we, we said that's the only somewhat similar product that we've been aware of. Uh, we heard from several listeners that have tried Lima's and are not that excited about them. And we didn't hear from anybody that knew of another product that did the same thing. So I think we were right on that, that there is no competitor other than Lima, but, um, I, I don't think we have ringing endorsements for Lima either. Yeah, Tracy was pretty upset about Lima um, because it only had a three-star rating on Amazon and it does not have support for Roku and I don't believe it has support for Apple TV either. So um, that can be a pain depending on what you're trying to use it for. And Brian wrote in and said that his experience was that the Lima can just become suddenly unreachable for any reason, that the documentation is is somewhat skimmy skimpy on it um and and that it just you know has has kind of been a flaky experience all the way around that you can't just plug in a USB drive to your Mac and get the you you can't just plug it into any USB drive on your Mac and get your data off of it like like you could um I don't think you could do that with a transporter either because it was a it was a unixy type system but um it it's um it it's still early days and we'll see if this is a product that makes it yeah this stuff is hard I mean, that's the bottom line. I think one of the problems is that the the cloud-based uh, storage solutions, iCloud, Google Drive, Dropbox, are all getting cheaper and bigger. So the motivation to do this on a financial basis is not as strong as it used to be. And then it, it just leaves the kind of the privacy concern of saying, I want to have the cloud myself. And I don't think there's as many people thinking about that, which makes it harder to sell the product. So I don't know. We'll see. Hopefully somebody will step in and do it. Um, on that subject, we also heard about Dropbox cloud-based systems and tagging uh, from Derek. He says Dropbox is the only cloud-based system with which one can tag a file or folder on a Mac A and have the tag synchronized to Mac B. And uh, so it allows for creation of tag-based systems for managing all the clutter that ends up in Dropbox when the applications stick their own folders into um, it doesn't matter whether I'm on my desktop or laptop, tags are always there, which is nice. But, you know, the problem underlying tags in iOS, in my opinion, is that they're not on iOS. So uh, there's some things to like about them. In fact, we have a tagging with Terpstra show in the works in a couple months. We're going to have Brett Terpstra on to talk about tagging. But, but you know, there there's some underlying problems there. And I guess one of them is not all the cloud-based solutions are going to support them. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password. Go to onepasswordcom MPU in all caps to save 20%. Now, we mentioned this a little bit in the content of the show today, but because 1Password is a sponsor, I wanted to take a little bit more time to talk about their newest feature, Travel Mode. When you're traveling, border security sometimes has the right to inspect your electronic devices and get access to a lot of your information. This is just one more reason why Katie and I are such big fans of 1Password. The gang at 1Password has now made it even easier to travel safely. 1Password believes it's important to protect your personal data and keep it as secure and private as possible. With the new travel mode feature, you can turn it on and every vault will be removed from your device, except for the ones that you've marked as safe for travel. All it takes is a single click. Once you get through security and arrive at your destination, you can turn off travel mode and 1Password will re-download that important data that you removed for the purposes of travel. 
So when in travel mode, the vault oranges are hidden, they're completely removed from your devices as long as travel mode remains turned on. That includes all items and all encryption keys. There are no traces left for anyone to find. If you're using 1Password at the workplace and your teams, it's even better because you can turn the travel mode on and off individually for your team members to make sure your company data remains secure at all times. Travel mode is just one more great example of why 1Password is an outstanding application to protect your security and privacy. There's so much more to this application, and if you haven't checked it out now, shame on you. You should go check it out. 1Password is easy to learn and improves your personal security a great deal. Best of all, you can get 20% off if you go buy it at onepassword.com slash MPU in all caps. So to protect your privacy both on the internet and while traveling, head over to onepassword.com slash MPU and get 1Password today. Just to close the loop on a, another question we had from Neil on the last MPU Plus show. So it's been a while now. Um, Neil had a, a situation with work where he worked a couple of days a week on one week and then a couple of days a week on different weeks. And his um, question was, how can I add a reoccurring event that reoccurs on different days on different weeks. Um, and we had a couple of people write in with solutions that says, you know, create an event one week that repeats on Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, every two weeks, and then create an event on the net, next week that repeats on Tuesday, Thursdays of, of every other week. And, you know, see if something like that works for you. I'm not sure if this would work in Neil's case, because I think his situation was even maybe not quite that regular. But if it does, that sounds like it's a good solution to Neil. Um, But I wanted to use this opportunity to point out to people that, um, you know, the Facebook group that we've talked about uh, is a great avenue for solving these types of questions and getting questions and kind of support requests answered. Because Dave and I get a ton of email, as you can imagine. Um, and can't always troubleshoot and answer these types of questions. So we usually try to refer them on to the Facebook group. Um, and I think that's where this answer actually came from. So um, just wanted to make a plug there for the Facebook group and to suggest that these types of questions in the future, you might want to check them out there. So we got to do the iPad Sensei show with the Federico Vitici and had several people write in with feedback on that show. The first one is a correction. We talked about Zapier, Zapier. We couldn't figure out how to pronounce it. Well, well, now we know. Zapier uh, rhymes with happier. Yes. Thank you, Tim, for that correction. From Wade Foster, CEO of of Zapier. He he apparently said that on Mike Vardy's Productivity podcast earlier this year, where he was setting the record straight uh, as to the company's name. So... There we go. It does make me happier. It's a powerful app. Yeah, it makes sense. We keep threatening it. We're going to do the show on it pretty soon. IFTTT uh, upped its game a little bit in the last couple of weeks, too. So we, we've got a whole show planned on some of these web-based services coming up. Uh, formatting. Uh, I talk, I complained during that show about formatting in Microsoft Word. Uh, Microsoft Word, in large part, is superior on the iPad to the uh, to the Mac version. However, there's certain things that just won't do, one of which is style formatting. And that sometimes really gets in the way of me getting work done on the iPad. And we heard from Robert with similar problems. He says he has a template and pages that he uses. Uh, assuming there's no changes in line spacing, he'll convert it to a PDF, send it to the court where it's printed and ready for him to sign. And the problem is if there's a formatting change, it limits his ability to take the iPad on for work style and 
says ultimately he thinks he's going to have to get a, a MacBook Pro. Then he asked the question about Touch Bar or suffer with crippled Mac or crippled uh, MacBook Air. But bottom line is, because one feature is missing that's so essential to getting his work done, he's ultimately going to have to go to a Mac. You say that like it's such a bad thing. Well, I, I say it like it's a shame. It's a missed opportunity. I, I have nothing wrong with I don't I I work on the Mac a lot. I'm not trying to be Federico and get rid of my Macs, but I think I should have the option to do it on either device. And it's just so frustrating when you get really close and then have something as silly as the development team leaving out page formatting out of a word processor that requires you to go buy additional hardware. But is that an Apple problem or is that like a Microsoft Word problem? Well, in, in my case, it's a word problem. But in Robert's case, it's a pages problem. He uses it out of, my, of Apple Pages. So it's like it's a shame is what it is. Hopefully they'll get there. And I, I know these are early days, but. Uh, this hardware is so great. I just feel like these kind of problems still shouldn't exist. Am I, I'm getting whiny. Let's go on to the next one. <laughs> well, another thing that you've been whining about is the inability to track changes on uh, Google Docs on the iPad. Um, and again, yeah, Greg set me straight, though. Yeah, this this is not an Apple problem. This is a Google problem. Google has always been slow to um, to update their their apps for iPad. I mean, oh my gosh, how long did it take them to implement split screen? It was a long time. Um, but Greg says the solution to do it is to use the iCab browser. Um, the iCab browser allows you to do a bunch of different things, but specifically what you can allow it to do is to set the user agent to the Mac version of Safari. Um, and what that will do is it will trick Google Docs into thinking that you're browsing Google Docs from a Mac as opposed to from an iPad. Then it will serve you the version of Google Docs that will let you track the changes. That is a great idea, Greg. And I'd just say right now, if you don't have iCab in your toolbox on your iPod, on your iPad, you probably should. I mean, if you're someone who's trying to get work done on your iPad, iCab gets you out of a lot of jams. I don't think it's necessarily the prettiest or the fastest or even the best browser, but it is the most feature rich. And like the idea of saying, I want to trick uh, Google into thinking I'm sitting at a PC or sitting at a Mac right now iCab is the is the browser up to that task. So that's a good one to have around. Which, you know, just kind of highlights the shame of it that there's no reason why you can't do track changes on the iPad. You just got to trick it into thinking you're coming from a Mac. Yeah, I mean, this show is publishing the day before WWDC, and hopefully we get a bunch of iPad um, improvements. And, and listening to this, you may already know that if we did or did not, so it may be kind of silly to talk about it. But if we do, it sure would be nice if Google kind of stepped it up and, and got those incorporated into their apps sooner this time. I think last time it was actually a problem where they had written a lot of the underlying code for their apps custom as opposed to using Apple's general APIs. And that's why it was so hard for them to make the transition. But if they have made the transition once, I would assume that's a lot easier the second time. Um, we talked in, uh, I think it was the last episode, about how we were using uh, plugins to enhance the capability of Apple Mail, partially because Apple Mail hasn't gotten a lot of updates recently. Um, and you and I both use a utility called Mail Acton. We use that for automatically filing. Well, not necessarily automatically, but very easily and quickly filing mail messages. And another feature that I use it for quite a bit is for um, scheduling messages to send later. 
And Judy asked, she said, I'd like to use Mail Act-On with iOS. How do I do that? It seems like it's just downloadable on the Mac, but I'd love to have this kind of shortcut on my iPad, but I can't find any information on how to get it on the iPad. And, you know, I think we forget sometimes that, unfortunately, um, the Mac and the iPad are two separate and distinct operating systems. They are very, very different. And not all developers who make applications for the Mac are able to make those same applications for iOS. In fact, by its very nature, the way that Mail Act-On works as a plugin for Apple Mail, it cannot work on iOS. So unfortunately, there is no Mail Act-On for iOS. And there really isn't a good solution for this on iOS unless... I think really the only options that I can find um, is to use cloud-based solutions, um, to use utilities like SaneBox or or something like that that works in the cloud, um, or to find a third-party email app that has the features that you're looking for in Mail Act-On that you can then use for your email. Yeah, there's several third-party mail applications that have um, different features that may allow you to, to do a sort of tagging with your email or smart folders or however you want to go about it. But that that's kind of a devil's bargain because you've got to use their app then. You're stuck with them. And if they stop development, then you lose all that metadata. Um, if if the app gets crashy, you, you've got to deal with the crashiness. I, I've been going through a bunch of mail apps. We did a whole show on this about a year ago, and I thought just for giggles I'd go back and use a bunch of them full-time again. And... None of them, there, there is no single great mail app. You know, there, as much as you may not like Apple Mail, if you use one of these competitors, there's going to be things about them that equally disappoint you. So um, I don't even know if we'll do another show on it, but I, I can say that it, I still haven't found the, the magic answer to managing email. And getting back to what Katie was saying about cloud-based, I mean, this is exactly the reason why a lot of people ultimately go to Google uh, Google Mail or Gmail, or the, what do they call it, the G apps now? I think they have... G Suite. G Suite, because, uh, you know, Google has tagging in built into their their email system, which isn't really IMAP, and as an exchange, it's kind of their own thing. But it's there, it's in the cloud, and it's available on whatever device you use. And I completely understand if that's super important to you, that that's why you would want to go over to Gmail. Um, I, I have always come back to Apple Mail, and we've talked about this every time we've done one of these email episodes. I, I try other email tools. Um, I, I like some of the features in them, but I always come back to Apple Mail. And I come back for a couple of, of reasons. But the big one, it is that it is the purest mail option. It is not doing anything funky to my mail. I don't have to use third-party apps everywhere that I go. And I'm reasonably confident that it's going to stick around. I'm not modifying my mail in any for, any interesting or strange way. I mean, there have been third-party email apps that have come and gone. I agree. And, and there's some things Apple Mail does really well. Like, I like, I really like to do inline email replies. If someone emails me, I often reply in the middle of the text. You know, if someone asks three questions, I will put carriage returns and answer each question in, in relation to the question asked. So you don't just have this big block of text at the top, and it's confusing. Most third-party mail apps do a really terrible job of supporting that. I don't know why, but they do. <laughs> and um, anyway, I, I'm I'm ultimately probably going to be using Apple Mail again, but right now I'm on my spirit quest going through these third-party apps. I'm currently on Spark. I just finished a tour of duty in Airmail, and I'll let you know more as I go about it. 
All right. Uh, we talked about the um, lots of security implications on our tinfoil hat episode. Lots of feedback about tinfoil hat. People really seem to resonate with that. Yeah, that one keeps keeps giving. It keeps popping back up. Um, Greg talked about that for maximum security and peace of mind, one of the key aspects is ensuring that any program that you're working with is using what he calls a zero-knowledge policy. Now, zero-knowledge is not a term that I'm familiar with. I don't know if that's a term of art that I'm just not familiar with or if that's Greg's term, but he defines it for us. He says what this means is that data is encrypted using a local encryption key that only you know and so that the provider does not know and cannot read your data. Now, this I'm familiar with because I know that I use Backblaze in part because uh, although the data is encrypted back and forth to the Backblaze servers, I additionally encrypt my data with my own encryption key that I have and that they don't. So that if anybody subpoenas my data from Backblaze or if anybody gets a hold of my data at Backblaze, all they have is a big gobbledygook piece of, of data that they can't do anything with without my ridiculously long, insane encryption key. So, um, but you, he points out that there's a, you, you should look for this when you're looking for cloud-based services. Um, he says, um, you know, uh, he believes that um has this. I don't know. I don't know if they do or not. Um, but Dropbox does not. So it'd be nice if Dropbox would implement something like this. Yeah. And I, I believe a company like Dropbox would want to, because once again, Dropbox is not a company that's really monetizing your information or scrubbing it to my, I guess I, as I understand, they're not doing these things. So like Apple, they have a, a benefit to try and sell security. Uh, Fran points out, um, if you're using Instagram on your iPhone while vacationing, make sure that you turn off geotagging. And I actually think the opposite might want to be true as well. For the longest time, I turned location-based data and geotagging off on the camera app because I did not want all the photos that I took, um, you know, having location data stamped on them. And for the simple reason that if I uploaded um, a photo to social media or anything like that, I didn't want people knowing where I was or, or any of that. Um, and now there are some advantages to having location information. I think there are a lot of advantages to having location information on your data specifically um, if you're va vacationing. But Fran's concern is that if someone should hear you're on vacation, go to one of your social media feeds. They could figure out where you live, see that you're actually out on vacation and your house is rob ripe for robbery. Um, and I get that that does happen. It's not something that I'm super concerned about, but um, it, I guess what I'm more concerned about is just having my location-based data posted on social media so people know where I live or where I hang out or those types of things. So I think one of the other points to take away from here is to know when you have your location services turned on and how that data is being shared. Fran points out that Facebook strips out the EXIF data on uploaded photos, but the last time that she checks that Instagram does not. So it's possible that someone could get that information off your social media accounts. Um, I use a third-party app, and there are many of them, that um, will pull out this location-based information from your photos. The one that I use is called DGO, D-E-G-E-O, but there's several. So I don't know if you've got another recommendation or there are others, but I throw that one out there for what it's worth. All right, I have a totally sort of related, but not in the feedback outline. Uh, one of the things you can do with social media and pictures that's kind of fun. Okay, this is the exact opposite of what Fran was talking about. So this, about. Is, this is not terrifying? 
No, no, this isn't. Um, well, you're saying social media and pictures, so I, I bet it is, but go ahead. Well, okay, you, you be the judge. Uh, we had a, a party at our house for my uh, my daughter was in the big play, and they had a rap show, and we decided we would host it. So we uh, we, we I wanted to be clever, and, I, and my my daughter's friends know that I'm kind of nerdy. So I went on, I know they all use Snapchat. So I went on Snapchat, and I think it was $6. I bought a hashtag for like six hours for their party at my house because it's like a thing you know snapchat has hashtags that are basically part of the system and um and i thought it was a real great thing that when they got here we gave them the guest wi-fi password and the snapchat code and they just could not get over how amazing that was that we had our own hashtag for this party it was like it's like we were on the map I I don't use Snapchat. I don't understand Snapchat, but that's okay. I didn't expect you to, but someone out there listening uh, who has uh, who either is into Snapchat themselves. The next time you have a party at your house, you should get a filter. Or if you have kids that are into Snapchat or grandchildren, buy a Snapchat filter for six dollars, and you will seem amazing to them. Filter or hashtag are those two different things? I'm sorry, hashtag. Because I know when my when my cousin got married, he he had a hashtag, so I bet he bought that. And then he also had like a little emoji thingy that you could put on your pictures of like he and his bride. It was really freaky. Well, I'm just saying I I was, uh, you know, usually as the dad, you're usually the heel. But I got to be the hero for a couple hours because of this silly hashtag uh, from Snapchat. Okay. You're scaring me a little bit. But all right. I'm still a little terrified. One thing that can make you less terrified uh, related to um, our, we spent a lot of time in that tinfoil hat episode at the end um, talking about border security and how we have less rights at the border. You're subject to search and sometimes you can have to turn over your phone and your laptop and and unlock things for border agents because um, we we have a little fewer civil liberties and rights at the border than we we do other places. Um, One password just released travel mode feature for their app. And um, in a nutshell, what that basically allows you to do um, is to mark certain passwords and entries as travel safe and then have other passwords completely removed from one password um, when you're traveling that you can then turn off travel mode and then have them resync when you release uh, you get back to your destination. So you can keep only the passwords that you have to have and that are travel safe on your device um, so that if you have to unlock your one password keychain or anything, um, uh, that, that it's clear that they can't be restored until you go back in and turn back off travel road and then there they show back up again. Just one more reason to love those guys. They are always thinking. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Casper. Casper is a company that is focused on sleep. They make the perfect premium mattress and sell it online for a fraction of what it would cost in a store. Casper's award-winning mattress was developed in-house, has a sleek design, and is delivered in an impossibly small box. In addition to the mattress, Casper now offers an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets. An in-house team of Casper engineers spent thousands of hours developing the Casper mattress. It's an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. So it's no surprise that they have an average of 4.8 stars across more than 3,000 online reviews. Their San Francisco research and development team have developed a proprietary foam that relieves pressure and increases airflow. They've combined it with a springing comfort layer to contour your body and help keep 
keep you cool. This means Casper mattresses have just the right sink and just the right bounce. Casper makes a quality mattress at great prices, and they're designed and developed in America. They have cut the hassle and costs out of dealing with showrooms and are passing those savings directly onto the consumer. I sleep on a Casper mattress every night, and I would not consider buying a mattress anywhere else. It was simple. It was hassle-free. It was delivered in a box. How much easier could it get? You didn't have to put up with the pain of other stores, and I like it. Buying a Casper is so easy, and it's completely risk-free. Casper offers free delivery and free returns to the U.S., Canada, and now the U.K. too. With Casper, you can actually get to sleep on their mattress before you make a decision. Try it for 100 nights and decide if it's the mattress you want to spend a third of your life on. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. You can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash MPU and using the code MPU at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you so much to Casper for their support of the show. All right, we've got a little more feedback still to cover. We had a question from Ron about shared access to photo library and iTunes library. And this is kind of an eternal question that we have coming up. I don't know that we're going to have a great answer, but we'll kick it around a little bit. Ron says his wife and I would both like to have access to the photos library. And he tried it and it does not work with a shared photo a folder. You get a permissions error when you try to point photos to a shared folder. Apple Care confirmed that this does not work. So what are your options? Do you duplicate the photos library between two accounts? Do you use an external disk? I mean, both of these seem like a pain. Um, I know that if you have family sharing enabled, David, that it does give you a shared family library, but then you either have to basically use that as your main library or manually put photos in there. So it's kind of a solution, but Apple has not yet given us a good way to share photos in iTunes libraries yet. Of all the feedback we're talking about today, this is the one bit that I would love to be obsolete one day after it publishes. I would love to hear that Apple has better solutions for this at WWDC, but I'm not holding my breath. The um, I did that video field guide on photos, and this is a constant problem. This is probably the most commonly asked question I get, and there isn't a good answer. They have shared uh, publicly shared or online shared libraries. Like we do that in our family with like events we have, or when there's a new baby born, but when you do that, so, so what it is, it's a, it's a shared gallery that other people can be part of and depending on how you set it up, can even add additional photos to. So it's kind of like your own little private, you know, public shared, I'm sorry, it's your own private shared gallery. So whoever you allow into it gets to share. Uh, that reduces the size of the photo. So the person who takes the original photo will have original size. The other people will have a reduced uh, image quality size, which isn't great. Um, then you have the problem of the husband and the wife um, where they want to share photos. It's not that easy to have a shared library. And especially if you have kids and you're both taking pictures of the kids, how are you going to keep everything together? Um there's just not an answer. You can have a shared library. My wife and I have a shared library that we use to kind of share pictures like that. But for the really important pictures, um, I think still the best solution is to have one master library. I mean, when we first started down this road in the Sparks house, we had a, a family iMac before the truth was in the cloud, as they say. And we would sync all the cameras to that one computer. And that was probably the most stable way to do it. Now, if you want to do it today, you're going to have to export photos and import into one. You know, pick one person to be the master library. Um, but 
there's just you know what Ron's asking for is is not out there. Uh, Google just announced with Google Photos they're going to have some sharing tools where you can uh, offer to share photos, but it's a it's a thing where you have to select which pictures you want to import and not import. And I haven't seen it implemented yet, so I'm curious to see exactly what they did. But there still really isn't the the one library to rule them all cloud solution from any vendor. I mean, this is a this is a known problem. I mean, I talked to you know people at Apple, and everybody understands it. But I think it's a it's not an easy problem to solve, but it's one that needs to get solved. All right. Um, we got a, a tip from Michael about why he uses Apple Maps over Google Maps. Uh, and it's a funny one. But he said, Google Maps only rotates 90 degrees. Apple Maps rotates 180 degrees. And he says, when my phone is plugged into my Subaru, I can stand it up and still read the map. Hadn't thought about that. That's, that's silly for Google not to get that. I mean, that's iPhone 1 was able to rotate 180 degrees, most apps. Maybe it's back to another thing where they're using their own custom software as opposed to using Apple's APIs. Uh, there was a very good article that just went on the web in the last week, um, and I don't have the gentleman's name, but I'll, I'll send Katie a link. We'll put it in the show notes where uh, the guy who did the massive comparison of Apple Maps and Google Maps a year ago, uh, he did another one of those just a few weeks ago, and he, over the course of the year, um, was doing what turned out to be time-lapse photos. Every month, he'd take a picture of certain maps in Google Maps and Apple Maps to see how they were changing over the course of the year. And he had a lot of thought about the redesign that Google did and, and what's better. Um, I, I would recommend reading that if this is super interesting to you. John pointed out a concern. He says, I'm repurposing an old Mac Mini as a home server, and this does not meet the requirements to run El Capitan server, or I guess Sierra server. Um, he said, I uh, contacted Apple to ask, or I guess, oh, sorry, Sierra server. He said, I contacted Apple to see if I could get a copy of an El Capitan server. And Apple informed me that once they release a new OS, the old versions are no longer available for purchase. Um, so he looked at the Apple's app store to see if he could download the old version. And of course, that's not available because he hadn't bought it in the first place. Obviously, if he had purchased it in the past, it might would appear in his purchase history. But since this is his first attempt at running Mac OS server, he didn't have it to re-download. So it was suggested that he log into the app store using a Mac running Sierra and purchase Mac OS server from that machine. And that would give him the app in his purchase history. So he did that. And then from the mini, he tried to download Mac OS Sierra server, knowing full well that it wouldn't run. And when he did this, the Mac app store told him that it wouldn't run on his mini and asked if he wanted to download an earlier version of the server. And this was his roundabout way of getting it on there. So that's pretty cool. I know. Once once you get that download installer, you should save it off somewhere. Yeah. Well, Todd Oltoff actually got, I got Todd involved with this because, you know, he's our guest that talks about server often. And he was scratching his head too. It, it's really funny to me that, all the permutations we had to go through, but, but John got what he needed and it makes sense in hindsight, but it also seems like Apple should have a, an easier way to do this. 
We also had John write in and, you know, we did a whole show about email and he said, I noticed in your email show that you didn't talk much about email signatures and about formatting them. And I chuckled a little bit and he said, is there a mail program for Mac that will allow rich formatting features in his email because he's really looking for a way to make super snazzy email signatures. He says, I think this is a really important feature for mail app is its ability to produce good email signatures and well-formatted emails. And I chuckled a little bit because David, you and I hate snazzy formatted emails. Yeah. I try to keep it simple. We, and I hate email signatures that have all of the, the gobbledygook text in it. And I hate the, all the, you know, let me, let me put a logo and all these awards that we've won and all these other things in our email signatures. And the reason for that is because every email program is going to interpret those differently. Um, they're never going, like I have someone who um, sends me an email and they've got their company logo in their signature. And I know that they use Outlook on a PC. And I know that when they send me their email, they have a, a cute little small logo under their signature. But the reality is, is they've used way too big of an image for that. So whenever they send me an, an email, um, my Mac renders that as this huge image inside the email or as an attachment. And I'm just like, you know, that just looks ridiculous. Do you, do you realize that you're sending out this huge image in every single email that you send and it's not necessary? Now, maybe if he had a better way to format these emails, it would be a little different thing. But as a result, every email that I send out is plain text. Um, I've actually set Apple Mail it by default. Every email I send out is plain text. I have a very simple plain text signature and there's that. Yeah, I, lawyers are some of the worst at it. And sometimes they have legal obligations to put certain disclosures in. But in my experience, a lot of lawyers use way more than they need. And um, there's some there's some pretty funny uh, sample lawyer signatures out there on the Internet. Maybe we'll include a link to one or two. Uh, I think on the the in terms of severity of of bad signatures, I think the worst you can do is add images because Often, as Katie experienced, it doesn't show up as an image attached to your signature, but just an attachment to the email. And the the risk of that is if you have the other person with an aggressive spam filtering program, uh, that may be an indicator to them that the email is spam, and it may end up blocking your email from getting to your recipient. So, you know, the the benefit of the logo is lost um, as a result of you know, <laughs> but they don't get to actually see the email. So, so if you want to do a fancy one, my, my recommendation would be try to do it just with text, maybe some colored fonts or um, some sizing of your fonts. Try not to make an attachment, an image attachment to it if you can. Right. Um, if you must do all the fancy email signature stuff, uh, there is an app called signature profiler for Mac that will do it. Yeah, Mail Butler does it too for Apple Mail. If you use Apple Mail, Mail Butler has some signature tools. But please don't. Well, just don't go crazy. That's the only thing. I mean, I, I, everybody's entitled to do what they want. Maybe, you know, maybe John's in a business where that helps you get sales. And I don't want, I want you to, you know, we're not trying to impose our nerd will on everybody. But, but be careful with that stuff. It actually can block your email on the other end. Well, I think we've about hit the end of our feedback. Before we move on to our guest, David, do you have anything new you're playing with? I got a new camera stand, Katie, and I'm really excited about it. Okay. 
It's called The Glyph. You guys may have heard of it before. Uh, Studio Neat is a company that's been around for a while. I think, I don't even know. I'm, this is embarrassing. I think they have a podcast on our network, those guys, but I've never listened to it. But uh, they're uh, engineers who come up with cool ideas. And if, several years ago, they made this Glyph, which was a, a, a plastic um, dingus that fits onto your phone and then you can screw it onto a tripod and then it worked really great. I think it was the iPhone 4 that they made the first one for but it's evolved over the years and now I think it's the third iteration of the Glyph just came out and I bought it and I, I really love this. I think they've got it so great. Um, it's a hook that snaps over your phone um, across the width, not the length and it will uh, it has a, a lever on it so you just and it's got a, a spring it's spring loaded so you can just stretch it out put it over your phone whether you have the big iPhone or the little iPhone or whether you've got a big case or no case it doesn't matter it just kind of snaps close and then you press the lever down and it locks it in and your phone is now in this this holder very securely and it has three different tripod mounting points on it uh, so you can attach it to a big tripod. You can attach it to a handheld tripod. They even have a, a little wooden one you can buy for it from Glyph if you want, which is really nice. But the the bottom line is, you know, I, I, as I've said in the past, I really like to take pictures with my iPhone and maybe the, you know, maybe my, my camera add-on for it. But I, I like my whole camera rig to fit in my jeans pockets and the Glyph fits in my jeans pocket just fine. And it allows me to securely attach my iPhone to any tripod mounting point. It's a, it's 28 bucks. They're shipping now. And uh, I really like it. Well, I've got an app and I was trying to figure out which, which one to, to pick, but this is one that I have used. I think you even talked about it over on Mac Sparky, but it is an Interact scratch pad for Mac. And it came out at the end of March. And I think it's been that long since we did an MPU plus show. So I, it's been a long time since, uh, since we had a chance to do some of these, um, stuff we're playing with show, but, I have a lot of contacts in my database, and I'm constantly um, needing to add contacts to my database, whether it's um, somebody who emailed me something or somebody I'm on the phone with, and I need to quickly find a way to reconnect with them again. And what it is, is it's made by Agile Tortoise, who are the developers of Draft. And think of this like drafts for contacts, but it's basically a scratch pad. It sits up in your menu bar. And what you can do is you can either copy and paste or type in contact information. So you just take a clump of text that is, you know, contact information. Maybe you're you're copying, pasting in, um, you know, information that somebody emailed you or somebody's signature or something that you copy and paste off of a website or a directory. And you put it into um, Interact Scratchpad and it will automatically parse the information and figure out what's what. It knows what a name is, what a company is, you know, kind of figure out the title. It figures out what an address is, what an email address is. And it will put all that information in the right place and format it into a contact that you can then share to your address book. Uh, you can even, if you have specific groups set up in contacts, share which group that you want that to go into. Um, and it will automatically go in the right place. I know people ask me, you know, how can I say whether a contact goes into my personal address book or into my work address book? this is how I do it is I just paste the information into uh, the scratch pad and then pick the group that I want it to go into, um, whether that's a work group or a personal group. And, you know, it's, it's available on the Mac app store. It's not very expensive. I think it's, you know, less than five bucks. You know, I didn't have the, the price handy. It's four ninety nine. It's five bucks. Um, and it just sits in my menu bar until I need it. And I probably use it 
several times a week and it's there and that's that. I feel like this one paid for itself the first time I used it because Apple Contacts is such a mess to add a new contact. There's so much mouse clicking and texting. It just They make it as difficult as possible, it seems to me, to add new contacts and Apple Contacts. Whereas with this app, you just grab the data off the website or out of an email and you press paste and it does the rest for you. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Squarespace. Enter offer code MPU at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. There are a lot of reasons to need a website. Maybe you're going to create an online store, or maybe you're a photographer and you want to have an online portfolio. Maybe you want to start a blog like me and Katie did. All of those things require a website, and that used to be really difficult, but it isn't anymore. Because with Squarespace, it's easy. Make your next move with Squarespace. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea, And best of all, you can do everything right at squarespace.com. You can get the domain, you can use their award-winning template, and you can make a beautiful website. With Squarespace, there's nothing to install, no patches to worry about, no upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Squarespace has got it covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. But best of all, you can quickly and easily grab a unique domain name and set up a website. When I left my law firm and went out on my own, the first thing I needed to do was build a website. Of course, I did this in Squarespace. Squarespace makes it so easy that I just didn't have to think about it. I got some good copy together. I used one of the Squarespace templates and my website looks awesome. In fact, I hear from lawyers all the time asking me who did my website and I don't have the heart to tell them I did it myself with Squarespace. So whatever your next move is, do it with a Squarespace website. They start at just $12 a month but you can get a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com. Best of all, when you decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU for Mac Power users to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the Mac Power users. So the next time you make a big move, do it with a Squarespace website. All right, for this next segment, I have been threatening to talk about regular expressions on the show for for years, frankly. And the uh, the reason is, I think regular expressions is something that it's a programming thing that everybody could use. But uh, the challenge has always been, how do we do a podcast about something that's very text specific and actually very difficult to convey with just words? And I got an email from uh, listener Ed Cormany. Ed, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Ed makes the case. Ed, 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 tell us a little bit about you. So I'm a linguist by trade, uh, but a longtime Mac fan. And to give a little bit of a backstory, when I was in grad school doing my PhD, I took a course in computational linguistics. And I remember that we were doing problem sets and stuff for the class, and it was optional if you could use regular expressions in this. And this, this was very like programming heavy. And I thought, Oh my gosh, this is so complicated. I it's gobbledygook. I'm never going to learn this. And it wasn't required, so I just put it aside. And then like I went on and finished what I my degree in, you know, the more humanities side of linguistics, got out of grad school, got a job, and now I work creating uh tests, standardized tests of English language proficiency for people who are learning English all around the world. And it's so much, my job now has absolutely nothing to do with programming, but I found myself pushing all of these words around. And the next thing I knew about six months into the job, I was teaching myself regular expressions to get my stuff done. Yeah. 
and, and you know, and that's the thing with uh, regular expressions. It's really a programming language for words, I guess is, is one way to put it. And um, if you like, if you're the kind of person that does search and replace on your Mac, but you do it fancy, you know, like, um, like I hate uh, a period with two spaces after it. You know, it, it just, it bugs me. And I know that's the way a lot of us learned it years ago, but with, with modern typesetting, you don't need that. And so one of my search and replaces I do in Microsoft Word all the time is search and replace period space space and replace it with period space. And it just goes through the document, knocks them all out. I mean, if you're doing stuff like that with search and replace, you could be using regular expressions. I mean, it, it you're on your road, you're on the road, right? Yeah, another step along the road that maybe a lot of Mac Power users listeners ha- are familiar with is if you've ever made rules that do pattern matching like in Hazel. And it has this token system where I have to imagine that every single one of those tokens it's like match one digit or match a sequence of digits or match any word. Like all underneath, you know, Mr. Noodle is doing the regular expressions for you and sometimes I wish I could just type one right in there. But if you're familiar with those kind of things and building those kind of patterns, regular expressions is just a text-based language that gets you to that point. So tell us a little bit how it works, because you use it every day. I, I do wind up using it almost every day, like I said, in my very non-technical job. And so the way that it works is that when you do a normal find and replace, you're looking for an exact match. And that's the only thing that's going to turn up if you do that search. And what you're doing for regular expressions is you're using a a series of special characters to say, there are some placeholders here, there are some things that could be more flexible, and it means you can write one search term to match a whole bunch of things. So probably the... uh, the most familiar character that you'll see, like the first thing that you learn in regular expressions is that the dot, you know, like period or full stop doesn't actually match that character. So the example that you gave, David, like, oh, I want to find all of the, um, you know, all the ends of sentences and make it one space instead of two. If you actually just put dot space space and you're searching with regular expressions like matching turned on, you're, you're going to be really disappointed because you're going to find any letter, any character followed by two spaces. And that's not what you wanted because that dot character is special. It means any single character. That, that That's not what I want. That could be bad. <laughs> no. So you've got, so, so the way that it works is you've got this series of special characters. So dot brackets, uh, parentheses, and then you have um, your kind of Swiss army knife in regular expressions is the backslash, which is, is not super scary. Um, it's just the thing that says I the backslash turns special characters into non-special characters and vice versa. So if I really want to search for just the you know the character dot, I have to put backslash dot and that'll match a period or full stop like at the end of a sentence or a decimal in the middle of a number. Um, and it'll also take some regular characters and turn them into super powerful special characters. So um, if you type the letter D, just ordinarily, it matches the letter D like you would find it in any word. But if you put backslash D, it will actually match any digit, D for digit, 0 through 9. And so that's something more powerful than just saying I'm searching for a particular number in a particular place. Yeah, and getting back to uh, to Paul and Hazel, uh, when he has a, a token that's looking for 
two digits with a dash, followed by another two digits and a dash, followed by four digits, which is the way a lot of dates are listed in letters. That's all he's doing through regular expressions inside the app. Exactly. So if you can if you can rattle off one of these patterns like you just did, you're halfway to building it as a regular expression and putting it to use in in searching through a whole bunch of data that you have. Um, like you said, it's you know it's find and replace to the next level, and there are a whole bunch of different ways that I would use that over the course of a day. So, um, for example, um, one of the things I do in my job testing English, I may be testing vocabulary, and I have a particular word that I want to test in like a fill in the blank question. And let's say that the correct answer that I'm trying to test is you know the word pressure or something like that. Pressure as a verb. And I want to have the the wrong answers look kind of similar so that the student has to actually pick it out, um, you know, really think and pick it out from the list. And, it, and I say, okay, I want like three other verbs that start with P-R-E and aren't too long. Um, and so I can write a regular expression for that and match it against a dictionary file that I have. So I can say, um, there's a special character, caret, for the beginning of a line. So I can say, at the beginning of a line, P-R-E, then use that dot character and say, I don't want too many of them. I want anywhere between like two and four of them. And then I'm matching this against the CSV file. And I can say, okay, only the ones that in the next column, it says verb. I can run that search and I can get back, oh, there's, you know, 20 of those in English or something. And and that's just an example of how you use it going about your day. Absolutely. So that's that's just doing the the finding and not any of the sort of like filtering or replacing. Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit. You because you can do more than just find with this stuff. Because uh, we 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 sold it as find and replace on steroids. How do you get to replacing? Right. So the my go to text editor for this kind of thing. I'm I'm still using Text Wrangler, but they're now onto the track where everybody should use BB Edit, and there's a free version of BB Edit, and it has some of the best regular expression find and replace uh, tools in the business. And one of the nice things about it is that it'll give you a little bit of uh, a handhold through some uh, syntax highlighting. So if you go into uh, if you know, if you just hit Command F in BB Edit, um, it'll pop up a ordinary find and replace window, and there's just a little checkbox that says, um, you know, use regular expressions. And if you click that, then if you start typing in the find area, if you type one of those special characters, it'll flag it in red for you, so you know, like, oh, um, you know, I typed a dot, uh, and I really wanted uh, to find just the dot, or I typed an asterisk. Asterisk is a powerful character in regular expressions because it means match any number of these things. Um, so it'll flag those for you in red, and then you have your replace down below. So when someone is looking at, you know, running a regular expression on something, I mean, is this text that you are, you know, getting a little more basic, what are they running? Is this text that you already have in BB Edit? Do you copy and paste whatever you're looking for into BB Edit? Um, is everything in BB Edit? Is BB Edit what you're opening all of your text in and then running the regular expressions on that? I mean, from a practical standpoint, how are you doing this? Yeah, if I have a big chunk of text, it's probably headed straight for BB Edit. Um, I'll even um, take like a selection of text, and I'm a big LaunchBar fan. And you can actually just uh, quick send it to LaunchBar and hit you know hit your 
uh, abbreviation for bbedit and it'll open it up in a new file and then you're ready to go and process it on things. I'm forever at work getting spreadsheets from people, taking the spreadsheet data, copying it out <laughs> into bbedit and running these kind of filters on it. Uh, so that's that's really part of my process. And if you're listening and you're saying, well, I use pages or I use Microsoft Word or I use insert name of text processor here, uh, bbedit can be, I think bbedit is the tool you should be using for doing regular expressions, but it can be a transitory step where you put the text in there, you run the regular expressions you need to get the text in the format you want, and then, you know, command A and command C, two, two keyboard combinations, and you've got it in your clipboard and you can put it back in wherever you want it to be. Yeah, the the real pain point is when you say you've got like a whole bunch of really nicely formatted rich text and you want to perform one of these complex find and replaces on it because then the tools are kind of against each other. And that's because you're going to lose all that formatting when you go back and forth, right? Exactly. And the real trick there is to 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 do this as an early step, not a late step, if if you're going to be formatting text. Definitely, definitely. But for people who are like big Markdown fans, um, there's something, you know, then you're in plain text from the beginning and there are some cool things that you can do there. I take a lot of notes in meetings in Markdown at work. I've got my my MacBook with me and I've had things where I'll start to just ad hoc create notes in a meeting and I go, oh wait, this really needs to be like a Markdown outline but I wrote 12 lines and I didn't put any of the asterisks for to, to create a bulleted list in Markdown. And yeah. it's like, oh, well, I could go back through and, you know, arrow keys and, and do all of that. Or I'm in BB Edit. I have this rich tool at, at my disposal and I can just say, hey, BB Edit, take the beginning of every line and replace that, quote, replace that with asterisk space. And suddenly I've got a Markdown list. Any app that goes through and cleans text has probably got regular expressions in the soup somewhere. Like if you want, if you've got where one of these apps that goes through and adds an extra carriage return every time there's a carriage return, that's probably regular expressions. Probably. So yeah, I'll take things like that. Um, I also have like a text expander snippet where I can create a numbered list. And I had a thing the other day where in, instead of having just like, you know, one period, two period, three period, I needed it to say, Question one, question two, question three, all the way up to, you know, like number 50. So I fired off this text expander snippet and then I could say, oh, replace the beginning of every line with with question space. And it was done for me. I didn't have to write a new text expander snippet. I didn't have to do any of that thing, but I had the kind of text that I needed right at my disposal. And you did that. Was it looking for a digit or was it um, or was it just doing every line? It was just doing every line because I had started just from a brand new brand new text file. I had one through 50 with periods after them. And I said, no, instead, I want that to have question at the beginning of every line and off it goes. And, and you did that in BB edit as well, or text wrangler. Yeah. And uh, I, I've become good friends with the keyboard shortcut uh, command option equals in BB edit is replace all. And it'll even do that uh, when you don't have the find and replace window open, which is really handy. Yeah, BB Edit. So many web developers love BB Edit, but I think anybody who works a lot with words, this is another one that it wouldn't hurt to have it in your tool belt because it is very good at this stuff. Yeah, BB Edit is totally my scratch pad for any text on the Mac. And then if I want to do more like focused writing or something, I go to Byword or something like that. 
So for people who are just getting started with regular expressions, can you give us a couple of ideas of what might be easy entries into regular expressions? Like what what are some, you know, kind of easy ways to get started? So I think uh, I think one of the easiest ways to get started is to use a tool that lets you really see what you're matching in real time. So there's this great little app. Uh, I think, David, you've recommended this before. It's like a $3 app on the Mac App Store called Patterns. And you can paste any text into it and start writing a regular expression at the top, and it'll just highlight every match that you've found. And, you know, you can do this for things like, I want to find, like, in English, I want to find every past tense verb in in this, uh, in here. So I'm just going to look for words that end in, you know, ED. And you know, did you successfully write the the pattern or not? And you can learn and iterate very quickly in that way. Yeah, I feel like the thing about regular expressions is the bag of tricks is actually pretty small. Um, anybody that wants to learn this stuff can. I think you need to use it fairly regularly to stay fresh at it. But um, but it's really not that hard. And, and this app, Patterns, is great. Another good resource. I learned it through Linda. Just with Lynda.com had a, had a good course on it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you have access to that. Um, and then you'll find that you want to use them everywhere. The same as like, if you, if you're a text expander junkie, you're going to want to use it everywhere. And you start writing your text expander snippets down on sticky notes. You're going to start writing regular expressions or kind of faux regular expressions on sticky notes on your desk. Uh, and you're also going to look for like all the other apps where you can make this work for you. One that people probably don't think about, um, but has really awesome regular expression support is tweetbot the twitter client so in tweetbot it has mute filters so you can mute an account or you can mute a hashtag or you can mute a keyword the thing is though in its mute keyword settings there's a checkbox there that says match this as a regular expression and boy that starts to get really powerful when there's like a whole topic that you don't want to cover, you know, you don't want to see in your Twitter timeline. Or I, I was looking through mine here, and I think this is just the funniest example. This has been in there for like over a year. But there was a time on Twitter where people were doing a whole bunch of like unfunny parodies of that poem, I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox. And they were showing up in my timeline at a rate of like multiples per day. And I did not want to see a single another one of them. And so what I, I did was I wrote a regular expression that just starts, I have, and then a pattern for a past tense verb. And then that poem is like spread across multiple lines. And th- that was another reason it was annoying. They were like really gumming up my my Twitter feed because they would be like 12 lines long. And so then I have the the matches. I have past tense verb and then anything that contains five new lines in the rest of the tweet. <laughs> and that is, I will never see another one of those again. That just, that was the end of it. And it worked. And, and it worked. It took, you know, it took 30 seconds of fiddling. And now that's just in the repertoire. I will never see that on my phone. I'll never see that on my Mac. It's just, you know, muted forever. I'll also do things like, um, I mean, this is just a personal thing on Twitter. Like when, um, you know, when someone famous dies and and all of of Twitter outpours their their sadness over multiple days, I see it as like a news story, especially if it's not a celebrity that I was particularly you know attached to. And I go, oh well, okay, check, got it, everybody. And now I'm going to just you know put put that name on mute for like three days. And um, 
you know, if there are variations in spelling or, you know, then you can get that in there easily. And then it just, you know, it mutes for a while and then off it goes on its way. I think we need a website just called Ed's Twitter Filters. <laughs> we can oh my gosh, just... it's it, it scrolls on forever. Yeah, do you have political <laughs> Twitter pizzlers? I mean, I don't, yeah. <laughs> that, that could be a whole can of worms we're opening, but uh, I don't know. At some point, there may be nothing left in my my Twitter timeline. That That's a whole different topic we should talk about on a whole different way, day, David. I am uh, I'm kind of over Twitter, but more <laughs> on that later. Yeah, another one is like, there are some things where people cross post to Twitter and it like truncates a post. You can, I, I have filters like, um, if it has dot 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 and then like an fb.me link at the very end of the tweet, gone. Didn't need to see that. Well, I, I even find regular expressions useful. Like sometimes I work from prior, you know, lawyers are the worst plagiarists, especially of ourselves. And I'll be writing a contract and suddenly I'm like, oh, I wrote one very similar to this. And I can use that as a starting point. But what if I just want to go through and fix the the gender of the agreement like the first the one i'm working from had a a he and a his and a all the you know male related terms and then the new one needs all female related terms i can fix a lot of that stuff with regular expressions in a way that is way faster than the old henton peck and and that and in that case where you want to probably lay eyes on every single one of those so that you don't overcorrect what you can do with a regular expression match is you can say match he or him or his, and that's a single thing. And then every time that you hit command G, it's going to jump to the next one of any three of those words. So you can process through them in order and make sure that you only change the correct ones. Because otherwise, if you replace every he, you know, every he with she and every him with her, you're going to wind up with totally wrong stuff throughout half of the contract. And then you actually have more work than what you started with. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it is it's just one more example of how this stuff can can save you time ultimately. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, one other resource I would recommend is the BBA Edit documentation. Actually, does a very good job of explaining regular expressions. And um, and our pal John Gruber, I think he even had a hand in writing some of the earlier drafts of that. Yeah, that goes way back. So so there's just some there's some great stuff out there. I, my point is, I mean, this is only a 20 minute segment for our show. We're not giving it a whole show, but this stuff can really make a difference for you. If you spend a lot of time working with words, Ed does every day and, and you can, you can already hear how much it's helping him out. Um, go learn this stuff and let us know, you know, sound off in the Facebook group or even send us a note. If, uh, if regular expressions is something that can make a difference for you. Um, and everybody, I want you to know, Ed, Ed and I met last year at, um, I believe it was at the release notes conference that we met at. Yep. And, and Ed, in addition to being a very smart guy is also a podcaster and he has an amazing podcast called simple beat. And, uh, it's a looking at the history of Apple and the Mac community. It's got great stuff in there. Like they got shows on just the term, one more thing or the legacy input I output uh my favorite episode 35 on hypercard you know that's got to be a, a popular one right <laughs> that's one of our uh all-time all-time favorites most trafficked episodes yeah so, i mean who doesn't love hypercard that, that ever used it so i don't know i like it i keep you in my feed kind of as a um you know when i just want to back away from the news and just just get lost in apple stuff like i listen to simple beep and i recommend anybody else do too yeah, our most recent one was on Apple museums all around the world. Yeah, that's great. Well, and probably inspired by the most recent one. 
Exactly. Yeah, the one in uh, in Kiev. Okay. Uh, well, gang, let us know if you're using regular expressions, how you're using them. We'd love to include it in a future feedback show. And Ed, thank you so much for giving us some time today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, that will about wrap us up for this episode. Uh, and, you know, we do these MPU Plus uh, shows about once every month, maybe once every other month, depending on the amount of feedback that we have. So, of course, if you have feedback, you can send it to us at feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. Of course, you can also post that feedback in the Facebook group. We both keep an eye there. That's at Facebook.com slash group slash MacPowerUsers. Or you can find a link directly to the group on our website at Relay.fm slash MPU. Thanks to our sponsors for this episode, Smile, 1Password, Casper, and Squarespace. And we will see you all next time. Thank you.